According to data from Statista.com, the average price of a new home sold in 2020 in the USA was $391,000. According to Climate Change Realty, the price of finding your real estate agent and creating thousands of dollars in donations to support climate action is and always will be $0. Welcome to the podcast. Steve, great to meet you, man. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, sure thing. Glad to help. Yeah, glad, glad to have your help, man. We're uh, we're, we're neighbors, <laughs> yeah. um, and we we always love to get the podcast started with a bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Okay, so you want some history then, huh? The history uh, lesson. Give it to me. Well, you know, I don't know how far back I want to go. I, I mean, in terms of entrepreneurship, I've been doing that ever since I was about eight or nine years old. I, I think I've started. 50, 60 different businesses over that period of time. And I kind of, I always seem to have like 15 or 20 different business ideas on my mind. So it's always just a trick of um, finding somebody who could, who's into working on them with me, but there's no shortages of, of uh, new ideas, especially now with things changing so much and, and the situation becoming so, so dire. In terms of the necessity of getting it together finally, instead of procrastinating more, were there a couple lemonade stands mixed into those fifty ideas? Are you talking about like real like businesses, like fifty different business ideas, or that you or companies that you started? Well, everywhere from you know they didn't they weren't all successful, that's for sure. But um, you know, I guess a couple of them went public. There's on on the Nasdaq now still, and. Um, I don't know. I've had, I don't know, over a thousand employees yeah. at one point in, in terms of, of things. So, and then of course, small things that just fell apart too. So the whole range. When do you find you come up with your best ideas? In the morning. Yeah. I usually get up around four thirty or five and, um, you know, first couple, two or three hours of the day is, uh, kind of, um, Brain harvesting. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So I have a, a giant whiteboard in my, my living room. My whole wall is a whiteboard. And what I like to do sometimes is sit for three hours and just think. And I write things down and then I draw lines and then goes to the next idea. And then that spins off into another idea. Do you have any sort of like ritual that you like to do? Well, not rituals, but, you know, I do stuff like that all the time. So what do you think is some of the most impactful projects that you've been involved with over the years? Well, um, probably one of the first ones is kind of launching the solar business. We were the we had the first store to to retail solar panels. Actually, I have a little chart here on the wall. I can show you real quick if you don't mind. Bring it to me. Yeah, make sure you um, make sure you like elaborate um, with audio as well. Did you say that you were one of the first solar stores in California? Yeah, we were the first ones to, to retail solar panels. This is kind of an old ad from one of our suppliers back in those days. So this was a six-watt panel that was 23 watts. And so you needed two of these for a 12-volt battery. So that's $900 for 23 watts wholesale. Wow. So um, it's changed a little bit now. It's like 50, 75 cents a watt. So <laughs> No kidding. So, so you were the the first to retail solar in the country? Because yeah, I think yeah, California is the 
there's a big research project they did. It's called um, Solar Pioneers. And they, they did research and interviewed all kinds of people and kind of determined that. And what was it like in, in the beginning when this technology wasn't necessarily like proven or as verified as it is now? Well, you know, we were up in Humboldt and Mendocino County, the kind of Emerald Triangle of marijuana farming in California. This was in the beautiful, uh, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. And um, and it, it I mean, the reason solar really launched there is because that was the only group of people that needed that type of power and could afford it. Because, you know, it was, you know, so we had a, I had a natural food store up there that started, mm -hmm. I think, 1970 or something like that. And um, it was kind of, a, it was part of the back to the land movement. You know, there's a ton of us left urban areas and moved up into the country. And so we kind of had this little enclave, subcultural enclave up there. It was, it was like a natural food store, but it was more like a community center because, you know, we were just surrounded by rednecks and all this it was, it was almost like being a black person in the South then in those days, being a hippie and um, logging country. And so anyway, so we had, you know, just customers coming in and, you know, buying bulk grains and herbs and walking up, you know, um, torn T-shirts and barefooted and $100 bills falling out of their pockets when they'd walk <laughs> up and down the aisles. And, and so... Um, and and up there, you know, that was about the only way you could make money is like growing weed. That's where that's where that really started too. Was that illegal weed? No, it wasn't legal. No, no, it's yeah, totally in California, totally not legal. Oh no, well, <laughs> but, was, but in the early days, it was, it was almost illegal, be, I mean, almost legal because they didn't care. And I remember mm -hmm. one of my customers called me when it started getting more um, when they started busting people. And yeah. they, the police came up and they were, you know, pulling his plants and they, he had this big mother plant that he used and they were, and they were, he got in a tug of war with them. The, the drug agents were pulling on it. And he said, no, I need this plant. This is my most important one. And he said, well, I've got a baby. Plants. And so then they said, okay, well take that one instead. And he said, oh, okay, you can have this one. I'll take that one. And so, you know, in the early days it was uh, pretty mellow, but um, then when uh, Reagan and, uh, um, Nixon kind of really launched the war on drugs. It started getting Ruined really the country. Bad, really serious. And yeah, and that's that kind of, um, but, but in any way, in terms of the solar, that was kind of um, this unique group of people that both needed that type of power and could afford it. And that, and then them buying it and getting more popular with them, then the prices started coming down and the proof of concept was out there. And, uh, and here we are today. So this is those folks, they couldn't get energy out there any other way. So solar is what made the most logistical sense. Yeah, I mean, there were other ways before before solar panels became available. We were still doing, we were doing micro hydro systems and small wind generators. And we had a DC system as well. So a lot of times people would, um, well, like I did too, you know, had cabins up in the mountains and you'd, you'd take the battery out of your truck and, and uh, watch a 12 volt TV. At, at night and then in, and just to, as a safeguard in case you um, didn't stop soon enough you'd always have to park your car or your truck on a hill so that if your battery was dead when you went out there you could jump start it going down the hill oh that's funny and and so we already you know sold a 
12 volt t TVs and music systems and 12 volt lights and you know all the different accessories. And so when solar panels started becoming available, we already had a system that they could plug right into and be useful immediately. So when it comes to the specific technology of solar, being there in the very early days and seeing how it's completely taken the whole country, the whole planet by storm now, how has this kind of shaped your perspective on like the nature of technological innovation and adoption just generally? Well, I've always kind of thought of business as kind of um, like uh, like an analogy to like a um, big business and small business kind of big business is kind of like um, an ocean liner. And small business is kind of like a kayak. So it's it's really Nimble. hard for a big business to be very innovative because it's so expensive and they have so much overhead. And it's but what, what big businesses are really good at is is taking things and really scaling them up once they once they prove themselves. So 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 I've always kind of been on the real small, innovative, creative, launching new products, new systems, new ways of doing things. And so, you know, solar was just one example of that. I mean, we just, you know, we're just our our solar sales just went like that up until around 2000, and then it's kind of went mainstream, and um, then all the huge companies started having it, and I, I lost interest because you know it was it was in a different. We kind of handed it off at that point, and so you know it's not like there's a problem with that, or I don't feel resentful about that. I think it's just kind of a organic, natural way for um projects to evolve and we did it with lots of other things we were one of the first companies to sell compact fluorescence and that was kind of the same thing we when we were first started selling them they were like 42 dollars a light and then most companies that say it's ridiculous why do and and i'd only i sell maybe two or three a year and you know most companies have just not even considered doing it or just get rid of it right away but i just always thought it was just this great technology and it had so many so much uh, energy potential savings. So I kept doing it. And then, you know, gradually our sales just started going like that and like that. And at one point it was our, we sold more compact fluorescence than anything else. And then it went mainstream and our kind of chart went crashed again like that. So do do you find that you prefer to be at like the cutting edge of industry because of like the challenge and the thrill of starting a new project? And then once it kind of gets big, it's like less interesting to you. Is, is that kind of the angle you've taken in business from? Well, not necessarily. It's just been more the situations I've been in. I'm, I'm kind of hoping now with our company, because I think one of the things that really needs to happen now in terms of these environmental issues, I think all these uh, giant Fortune 500 companies that are making tons of money but really trashing the planet, they need to kind of become small companies. Mm -hmm. And the small companies like like ours now need to become the next Fortune 500 companies. So so I'm, I'm kind of hoping and planning um, to kind of take that route this time instead of just passing it on to the big companies, kind of becoming the big company. Is that because you like in in the past you they haven't kind of continued your vision the way you would have liked, and when you've sold off past ventures? Well, I think you know it's a. Uh, I think there's the corruption is just endemic in the the large company world. I mean, just you know the whole thing about having to make a profit every three months, or you know, I mean, right. it's the law that you you know if you're the CEO of a big company, you need to 
do everything you can to make it profitable immediately. And um, what we're talking about in terms of environmental issues, it's, it's not, unfortunately, it's not that quick of a fix. You can't fix it in one quarter. So you need to have a, a bigger perspective and, you know, a, a different vision. And that's, it's, it's almost impossible for a big company to really do that. I think a lot of times when it looks like they're trying, it's just more some kind of greenwashing. Totally. So I think we really need a whole different economic foundation to make the changes that are needed now. And what kind of issues are, are you thinking about when it, what comes to mind when you're talking about environmental issues in, in your head? And what are your thoughts on potential solutions if it's going to be large scale? Well, I don't think so much the the question is the what the solutions are. It's more the motivation. Because, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 50 years and, you know, the, the solutions are all here. We have we have all the technology and all the systems and all the knowledge to to really turn things around. But what's missing is the motivation. And I think, unfortunately, things probably are going to need to get a little bit worse before that motivation really picks up before before. I mean, I kept. I mean, 20 years ago when Al Gore was talking about it and making that movie in the book, I, I thought that was enough to turn things around, but it didn't. And then, and then in November when the UN did that big report on the sustainability and the sustainable development goals, and the you know the head of the UN was raving a flag and said, "Last chance, you know, this crisis. We have to get it together now, or it's going to be too late." And I, I thought that was going to be more of a motivation, but. Um, so I guess things haven't gotten bad enough yet for to get more people on board, though. Slowly, more and more people are, but we need to, if we're going to really make the changes that need to be done, we need to, a lot bigger um, support base. Yeah, I think you need to have some sort of input in people's daily lives. I mean, when it comes to like converting sales or real estate, they say the average you know, you have to touch, it's like a touch. Like when you reach out to someone and ask them, Hey, do you want to buy this product? I think you would know all about this selling products for 50 years that it takes six to seven touches to get someone to do something. So I think probably if you want people to actually uh, create climate action or change the way they think about the way they live, they're going to have to be consistently reminded, which is annoying because I don't like the idea of remind, like reminding people of bad things. I like to give them spin it as opportunities so maybe that's like a sales thing it's like hey climate change realty buy, find your real estate agent save the planet like that every single day rather than like hey like sell your car the world's gonna end sell your car like uh, that's not really the way I, i'd want to go about it so can you tell me about what, what you're doing with your most recent big project at sustainable village here in boulder well we're we're kind of um we have some things uh, the, the whole range of types of products and systems, but our, I guess our main focus is irrigation. Water mm -hmm. is such a huge factor and it's, um, and agriculture in general too. Um, I mean, I, I saw one report recently that said if, um, if the rest of the world had the same kind of lifestyle as the, as, as an average American does, it would take five planets just for enough resources yep. to supply that. So, and, and the rest of the world is trying to become like us. Totally. So, so, you know, it's, it's a, not a very realistic situation, even though most of the world is going down that path. Can you tell me about some of the, the most interesting products that you sell? If I recall, did you guys sell a, a composting toilet as well? Or am I mistaken? You oh, yeah, sell we sell some interesting stuff. 
toilets for 30 years, you know? Yeah. Any, any uptake in that, in that front? It seems really silly that we use potable water. That's like the source of all life to, um, physically move waste. It seems like there would be a better thing we could do. I mean, I know that there could be a better thing we could do. I don't know if it's, yeah, we've, done, we've done a lot, you know, with gray water systems. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty easy to, you know, take your bath water and use it for flushing the toilet, you know, things yeah. like that. And we, and we have one real simple kit that just attaches to your washing machine. And, and that's a real simple inexpensive way to go because you don't need a pump or anything. The, the, the pump that's in the washing machine pushes the, the water when it's done out through your garden. So, so that, that works really well. What type of people are, are purchasing stuff like this? It seems very, very niche and it would be what we need it to be to actually fix our issues is for this kind of stuff to become mainstream. And what's crazy is it's, it's, it's obviously better when you use resources more efficiently. Problem is we don't have a, we don't, water is not very expensive right now, I think. Well, it depends where you live. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and the water, I mean, you know, every year it's, it's kind of like that analogy of the five planets to give enough resources for what we're doing. I mean, the, the fresh usable water every year is less and less and the number of people needing it is more and more. And, um, you know, there's just the, uh, big <clears throat> in the fall, they really cut back on the supply of water from the Colorado river to, <clears throat> I think six different States, you know, and, and, um, especially like Arizona and New Mexico and places that were, they weren't getting enough water before this. And, and now their water got cut back. I, I don't remember what percentage, maybe 20% or something. And so, and there's, there's so many um, repercussions from that too. Desert vacation on a worldwide scale is really scary. If you see those statistics, how much more land every year is becoming desert and, um, and forest fires. You know, um, forest fires are increasing every year. I mean, all kinds of, and and a lot of those are just related to everything drying out more. You know, if you if you have, if you have grass that's all dried, it's like kindling, just easily totally. sparks. You know, if it's green, you know, it's really hard to get it to burn. So, you know, anything we can do, and and I think that's really a key too, and especially in terms of um, more urban type situations, because. I saw this this one Tibetan Lama was wrote his that Karmapa he wrote a book about environmental issues and one of the things he said was you know to go back to that issue of getting more people on board he was saying he thought that the the reason it was so much harder to get urban people to be serious about environmental issues is because their environment disconnects them so much from nature I mean when you're surrounded by asphalt and cement and you know, maybe there's a park seven or eight blocks away you can go to once in a while. But, you know, with without any kind of real personal connection with nature, it's hard to um, get serious about protecting it and doing things to help it. And so, so you know, kind of the idea of, so even we, we, we have a division called uh, uh, Sustainable Cities. And we're, you know, doing a lot of products that are specifically for like rooftop gardens, balcony gardens, uh, vertical gardens. And of course, you know, like the, um, all the small stuff too, the urban, but, um, 
I think besides just the obvious benefits of of having more food, I mean, especially some of these, they call it urban deserts or urban oasis, you know, like so a lot of people living in small cities in, in the inner cities, they might have to go an hour and a half on a bus just to get a head of broccoli. Wow. You know, and, and basically all they have locally is McDonald's and Cokes. And so, um, you know, be, and so, so developing agricultural things in cities is, has lots and lots of benefits. And are you finding that there's a lot of interest in that? Is that like who some of your customers are? They're buying, they're doing these vertical and rooftop gardens. Oh yeah. Rooftop gardens are huge. I mean, for so many reasons, not only for the, the crops, but they uh, can significantly lower the temperature. I think Chicago has really been into it for a long time. I think we were working with them, I think 25 years ago. And, and I think they've, they've lowered, this isn't an exact number, but it, I think they've lowered the temperature of the city in the summers by 15 degrees. Wow. By having, having uh, rooftop gardens because, um, because, you know, air conditioners work by pulling the hot air out of the room and putting it into the, the ambient air outside. And so you have all those air conditioners, they're just in, increasing the hot temperatures in the cities all the time. And so if you have rooftop gardens, I mean, it's, it just lowers the, the need for air conditioning tremendously. Well, the, uh, the idea of just shade in general will be probably much more efficient at cooling a property than running a fan that's powered by fossil fuels and pushing air out. I mean, if you just literally just put something there, especially if, if it's something that's taking the, the energy of the sun and converting it into life, into food, that seems like a win-win. Yeah, and, and uh, fans aren't so bad, but air conditioners use a tremendous amount of energy. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it also... Um, makes it uh, easier to heat in the in the winter because you have like a garden on top, you know, with the soil. So the insulation is so much better. So that it lowers your heating bills, it lowers your air conditioning bills. You have a crop you can go up and do. There's one one big uh, grocery store in Canada that has um, they they get most of their produce they grow on the roof. I've seen I've seen this. Yeah, and they have cool. bees up there and all that. So. So yeah, that's that's something that's that's uh, has a, I think a, it's already gotten a lot of momentum, but can go a lot further. Well, because it makes a lot of sense. Because what were we doing with the roof before? Yeah. Nothing, right? So it's just a huge like you know, land is one of the most valuable assets that exists. Like it's just it, it's if it's not being used, it's a waste of space. We should be using every single inch. And then the urban urban environmental stewardship or just finding ways to integrate natural ways of living into urban urban life is so essential because most humans are going to be living in these urban environments the population is continuing to grow and urban environments are also better for um greenhouse gas emissions that you use things more efficiently so um would you say that your your best selling product right now is this is this blue mat water system or do i just have a bias cuz i talk to izzy all the time um well, we, we have lots of different customers. I mean, um, I mean, blue mats have kind of really become the preferred method for um, marijuana farming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just has, it, it just, it, they, they pay for themselves like within weeks of a, in a marijuana situation. But, but, you know, they're not as kind of uh, applicable to like growing lettuce or something, you know, so. 
Huh. You know, so even if, I mean, if you, even if it makes your, your harvest 30 or 40% more, I mean, that pays for itself if it's weed, but if you're growing lettuce, you know, 30% more wheat, more lettuce in your garden, you probably have more than you need anyway. And so it's, it's, you know, the economics don't um, have the same kind of impact. But, but still, still 30% is a lot, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just a little harder to justify if you're not growing a, a crop, but, but we have other systems, you know, that are less expensive too, that will do the same thing. Almost. For We're example. not quite. Well, well, we have, we have this uh, product called uh, root demand irrigation tape and it uh, goes subsurface and um, really, really slowly lets the water out. And it, it can actually work too on, uh, on under grass. You can put it under turf and it uh, eliminates almost all the evaporation. And because it goes so slow, you know, the, the slower, I just wrote an article on blog on our website on called slow water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the slower the water goes to plants, the less horizontally it goes, the more vertical. Like if you just pour water on the ground, you know, most of it goes left and right. It goes horizontal. It goes far away from the, the plant roots. Whereas if you go really slow, then the water goes deeper. And if the water goes deeper, the roots go deeper. And if the roots go deeper, they have more access to minerals and nutrients that are um, that are deeper in the soil. And also it makes the plant stronger for wind and, you know, environmental issues and also makes it a lot more drought tolerant. So so the basically the slower we water, the, the more benefits there are like that. So so we have a, a kit like that that just. Um, connects to a five gallon bucket or any kind of reservoir that you can manually fill up or have a float valve in it. So you can just hook it up to your garden hose and uh, um, gravity feeds your garden. So you don't need any um, electricity or batteries or timers or pressure reducers. So it's really inexpensive. And basically you can kind of set it up in the spring and come back and harvest in the fall. You might want how, to come check weeds and stuff, but how do you like find out about all these different opportunities, vertical gardens, with different ways of distributing water, solar panels? Are you like reading articles all the time, or reading books, or do you watch documentaries, or do you have you been talking, been getting into circles for years, just talking to people? Yeah, I've been basically doing it my whole life. I mean, I, I remember uh, the Whole Earth Catalog was a big impetus in that direction when it came out. I don't know, 1969 or 70 or something like that. But I, I read the whole, all through it, every page. And back in those days, it was a typewriter and envelopes with stamps. But I, you know, I wrote to all the companies in the whole earth catalog that looked interesting and um, got set up with different, you know, uh, business accounts. In the 90s, we had like over 10,000 products on our website, you know, all environmental can you tell me about your experience with your company? Is it what is it? Is it called China Direct? Oh, Green China Direct. That's Green that's kind China of a Direct. Company. That's a different yeah. company. So so yeah, I was I've always kind of been really interested in uh, Chinese philosophy and uh-huh. um, Lao Tzu and Zhuangzi and um, even Confucius and things like that. And so when uh, so I was always kind of on the 
edge of China. And then when in the late 70s, when uh, Deng Xiaoping and uh, Jimmy Carter, they kind of it used to be called the Bamboo Curtain. So in 1979, they kind of opened that door. And I, I started a company to uh, deal with to import and export from China called Green China Direct. And um, so I went over there as, you know, one of the first, I mean, it w wasn't legal to go there before that. And so it was really interesting because, you know, I went to so many people, pe pe you know, where, where the populations has never seen a, a white person before. And so it'd be, you know, it'd be, it's really interesting. You'd be, I'd be walking on the sidewalk and a bus would go by and you'd look up and there were about 50 people looking out the window back at me <laughs> to see, you know, it was, uh, you know, you'd stop on the street and there would be like 80 people surrounding you watching what you were doing. It's it was like a kangaroo walking down the, the middle of the city road. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I started doing that then. So what exactly would you go there and you would, so, so your interest actually came from a desire to, to kind of learn what their culture was like, what their ways of their way of looking at the world. You said you're interested in their philosophies and then you started um, cultivating these business relationships with the suppliers of some kind. Well, yeah, that was, I mean, the, the philosophical side of it was kind of before I started going there. And then when I started going there, it was all business things. So what kind of stuff are you, would you get from there for your businesses? Like, well, I remember talking to, uh, you know, Chinese engineers about solar panels and seeing things. And I think we were the first, we, we kind of invented those. They're, they're pretty common now, but those bamboo dish racks, mm -hmm. you seen those little bamboo dish racks and stuff sure. and then, and wall things. So, so that was, kind of, that was my idea way back then. And uh, we started importing them and then they kind of, there's another one of those things that kind of hit the mass market more, but, but, uh, you know, it was, it was always kind of appropriate technology oriented as I was really interested in their wind generators. We, my first trip there, I think in 19, when was that? 1980, I guess I went to a big, wow. um, big, uh, hydroelectric conference because China at that time, I think still they, they, they have something like 70% of all the world's micro hydro systems. So I went to a big um, business conference there on micro hydro. There, there's one in Boulder actually that's been here forever, just up Sunshine Canyon. It's a big five thousand. Um, and any of the, the the person who who did that um, helped me get into China because even though it was open, you you needed to have be invited sure. and have some kind of references to go. So the the person who did that that hydro plant in Boulder, I think that was way back. I think. Because he was Chinese, so he he could go there before it opened up to Westerners, and so and I said I think it's still running, it's still working. But but anyway, so I was really interested in and and also biogas. They were China was uh, kind of had furthered the. I mean, it was really common to to uh, use the waste for cooking and lighting biogas. Mm -hmm. How many times have you been to China? Oh, I don't know. Um, Forty or fifty times. I've, you know, I've, I've probably wow. spent more than two years there. What are your thoughts on the future economic relations between the U.S. and China, based on what you understand? I don't know. It's a real It's a little dicey. I, I hope they totally. can get rid of Xi Jinping. He's a. I think he's the worst leader China's had since Mao. And, no um, and, uh, but, but hopefully his kind of 
cozying up to Putin will be his downfall. I think he's really bad for China, and I'm hoping they can replace him with somebody who has a little bit more sanity. Do you think that people feel, feel similar to that, or from people that you might know? Well, the, the people, I think, are not very political. You know, they're mostly just into surviving and yeah. uh, into their personal lives and stuff. I, I know, uh, yeah, especially after the Tiananmen Square thing happened. I, I have a Chinese wife and son, and uh, she was part of that uh, Tiananmen Square protest. But um, after that, there was such a huge crackdown. And it, it's so authoritarian, you know, it's it's really hard to, uh, it's not as bad as Russia, where if you call the Ukraine invasion a war, you go to jail for 15 years. Okay. So it's not quite that bad, but it's still, you know, it's uh, pretty far from being a free, open society. Do you think we could increase manufacturing and make our own products here in the U.S. in the future? Um, To some extent, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're kind of... We, we just set up a, a new division in Mexico. So we, we have our, our business registered. We have a separate business registered in Mexico now. And I think, I'm, I'm kind of thinking and hoping that Mexico can take a, a lot of that manufacturing away from China and do it, especially because the, the shipping costs have gotten so crazy. I mean, two, two years ago, the cost of bringing a container here Mm -hmm. Right now, it's twelve hundred percent higher than it was two years ago. Yeah, well, that's the pandemic thing going on. And and now and and I, so I was hoping Price it was going to go down after the pandemic, but now with all the the uh, the embargoes of Russia, you know that because because right, right, the way right. that those parts work, you know, the containers are in a queue, and they get lined up to go on the containers, and so they can't ship the Russian ones now, but they're in the queue. And all the other containers are behind them. So it's kind of creating a, a big log jam and stuff in there too. So it's I don't it doesn't look like the container shipping costs are gonna go down as quickly as I was hoping not too long ago. Well, there's never a small list of issues to tackle, is there? That's what makes being an entrepreneur and living life fun. If it was all fixed, we'd be bored. We'd just be laying in meadows with nothing to do, right? <laughs> well, I retired twice and it got too boring, you know, the right. last ten years and I hope I never have to do that again. I never, it's, 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 it's so, I just love doing business and it's so much more meaningful and fun than sitting around and watching TV or, you know, playing golf or, you know, traveling. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that. I mean, perhaps you could spend some more time studying like ancient Chinese philosophy and thinking about what it means to be a human and what is my son and my wife? Who am I? But I, that's the kind of stuff I like. I was a philosophy minor. I always love thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, so as far as like practical advice for someone who's really into sustainability here in the USA, what do you think are some of like the lowest hanging fruit lifestyle changes people can make to create a maximum positive impact on the environment? Well, I think it's important to start small on a small scale. I think I think that a lot of a lot of um, solutions kind of fail because people try to, you know, that that curve, that innovation curve, you know, they technological were innovation two and a half percent are innovators, and then you know you get fifteen percent that are early adopters, and then then you get into the mainstream, and it's it's uh it's it's really hard to skip that initial phase, and mm -hmm. and and start on a on a large scale like that, 
And I, I think bef before things can really make that jump from from the early adopters to the, the mainstream, you know, things have to be really proven. You know, innovators and early adopters, they really like the idea of being a guinea pig and trying something out that might not work. And, and you know, it's kind of like uh, prestige almost, you know, like, like I have, the, I, I bought the first iPhone and, you know, so, yeah. but, but, you know, most people are going to want to wait until something has really been tried and proven. And there's a, a whole bunch of people saying how great it is. So, so I think it's, um, it's um, much more effective to start small and gradually get the momentum going. You know, it's like physics where you have inertia, you know, the hardest thing is to overcome that inertia and get things, something going. And so I think just to answer your question, maybe the the best thing somebody might do is grow a houseplant. Oh. Just get something going, you know, relate to nature, you know, have deal with soil and dirt and the plant and water and, you know, just kind of kind of have some kind of more connection to those elemental basic life forces. Yeah, I mean, I might even make the argument that you should start a, a gym routine because then you actually teach yourself discipline. I'm going to show up to the gym. Once a week, if you're really passionate about improving your world and, and um, you know, being a good steward to the planet, but you're always busy with lots of things, I think starting with uh, having discipline in your life and really being rigidly committed to something, improving to see yourself, I can go to the gym every week for a year. That's that's kind of what comes to my mind. Do you think you think we're going to reach a point where like regenerative policies and connection with nature is like really mainstream? Could you think of a way where we could use markets to create a fully regenerative global economy? Because that's what I'm like really passionate about. Well, I think we either we, we either need to do that or kind of just let the world burn up. You know, so I mean, it's it doesn't even seem like a choice to me. I mean, uh, and I, I just think it's um, it's just kind of a process of being patient for more people to realize that. But I mean, we have to do that sooner I mean, or later. The sooner we do it, the, the less negative effects we're going to have. But um, we have to do it at some point if we're going to survive. How, how patient can we be when you're talking about if we're going to survive, though? Well, well, <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, again, you know, like thinking about the big scale versus what we can do on a personal level. And so... And I, I think that's one of the problems, you know, we kind of look at some of these big problems, like, say, forest fires. Mm -hmm. And we think, well, that's something, you know, that I can't do anything about preventing forest fires. You know, that's something that the governments have to do or big NGOs or nonprofits or, you know, big forest department or whatever. But but actually what they've been doing has just been making things worse. You know, the, the whole I mean, there's it's really mm -hmm. scandalous. Uh, Forest Department has made all these deals with the logging companies, you know, when to to log to to log the forest. And, um, you know, be, before there was a lot of environmental pushback on it, they, uh, you know, they just called it logging. And then when when people started saying, wait, that's really causing all these problems. And they say, oh, well, now we're doing forest fire prevention. And they were doing the same thing. Slocking. And they're they're actually making forest fires much more common. And much worse because they're, they're clear cutting these forests and then there's a spark from a fire and there's nothing to slow it down or stop it. And it just goes right through and, you know, gets close to houses and things. So and, and in, in fact, just in terms of that example, in terms of forest fire prevention, you know, there's a 
there's books that say, you know, anything you do that's more than 120 feet around your house isn't going to help. But the 120 feet around your house, you can really make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's these zones. There's like the 25 feet around and then 25 to, to, set to 80 and then 80 to 125. And there's different kinds of things you can do in there. You know, like both the, um, the kinds of plants you grow, like, like some things are really easily burned, you know, like with trees, you know, um, evergreen trees like pines and firs, those little needles have so much oil in them. They're really easy to burn, you know, deciduous trees, the leaves fall off and they're, they're much harder. So you, so you, you never, you don't want to have, um, evergreen trees really close to your house. If you're in any kind of, uh, a threat of uh, forest fires. So there's just a lot of really simple, easy things that people can do just around your own house. So, um, you know, you just need to get that momentum going. Yeah. And like stuff like planting native plants or yeah, not planting tin- kindling everywhere. Um, I, I like that idea. It's very interesting to me that the 180 feet around your house, cause that's basically what the entire, um, planet is comprised of it's whether it's 180 feet of land or it's a group of of 10 people in your family who are then connected to another bubble of people next door they're your neighbors and then they have a family we're all connected through these little like little pockets of whether it's people or life forms or ideas all connected by these little groupings and if you take care of your little bubble it kind of can spread and uh it would positively infect the, the bubble next door. I think that that's, uh, that's cool. Any, go ahead. And I think that's, that's a really critical point because I think, um, when the average person looks at some of these environmental crises we're facing, it, it's so overwhelming and, um, it's hard for people to do much besides just get depressed. But if they, if they know about all these different things that they can do, then it, it, it not only helps things, but it um, pulls them out of their depression. And you can even get excited about doing this stuff because it's, it's really energizing and inspiring. And you're really making a big difference on a small scale. And that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, throwing a, a rock in the lake or something where it, there's just this little, little hole where the rock goes in, but then the ripples go all the way out, all over. And I, I think most people don't realize what kind of an impact they, they have, but it's really big. I, I, especially as Americans. And I don't want to say that like everyone can be like Da Vinci or Steve jobs, but what you got to realize is that that one, those one people, that one person had a huge impact on all 8 billion people who are still alive today. And that can be you. And it doesn't need to be 8 billion people, but what if you affected 50,000 people, would that be enough for it to be meaningful enough for you to make a change in your life today? I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about. And I think it's more relevant than ever in, in the U.S. as a young person facing the, mo- the most disasterly ecological crises of all time. I think that a coalition of the right forces can really, really change the world. I, I, I don't think it anymore. I really, the evidence is too strong. So that's like, who, who you who are listening right now, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to drift or are you going to do something and take action? But, um, well, Steve, it's been great having you on the podcast, man. Any, any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about creating those positive ripple effects? Hmm. Um, 
Well, I think I think it's a big challenge because you know we're so brainwashed with this whole capitalistic religion that we're inundated in. You know, I just read a book recently that was describing capitalism as a religion. Sure. And as uh, the biggest religion, the fastest growing religion that the world has ever known. And he just goes through all these these points about um, what are the basic qualities of a religion and, you know, and then how, how that applies to to um, capitalism. You know, like Wall Street is the big cathedral and, you know, well, money is the, the main goal. And, and, and so um, so it's 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 really hard when everybody around us believe something and we might know it's not right or it's wrong so it, t- it takes a lot of courage um but it's really critical we need to do it right away i have no issue with having courage <laughs> so- sounds good to me and if if wall streets if they're the heads of the the, ch- the church of capitalism count me out man those guys are <laughs> those guys are demonic i mean they're not even happy with their own lives if they have so much excess in wealth i mean the most meaningful interactions in my day just comes from like smiling at someone like life is really not that complicated like you just love other people and you get it back and that's kind of like it you get the oxytocin well, I, think, I, think the, I think the switch that we need to make is from just what I can get for myself. And that's what capitalism is all about. You know, everything's about monetizing everything and getting as much as you can and you never can get enough. I mean, it's incredible, like these billionaires and, and they're still trying to, they're still not satisfied with what they have, you know. But um, I think that's what really needs to change. We need to kind of tune back into to more human values rather than just um, money as the goal for all of life. It's, it's, it's really a false God. I I agree. I have, I have more I, I could say on that, but I know you have another meeting. So it's, it's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on today, man. I guess I'll, I'll end by saying, I think that we can transform the beast from within the belly. We could make money work for the people. That's why I like to talk about regenerative economics. Like you said, it's an, it's inevitable. So this model of take for yourself will end you. Eventually you'll just be fat and there'll be nothing left and then you'll die because you can't eat anything else. So it's, it's not, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's not like money is some evil, you know, it, money is just a tool. So like any right. tool, you know, like a hammer, you can, you can build a house or you can rob a bank. And so, <laughs> so, so money, money is the same way. I mean, um, and I think that's the, I think the main problem we have now is the that one percent, the people that have the most money, they're just lacking in imagination. They're they're lacking because there's so much they could do with that money that would make them much happier and make the world a lot better place, but they just can't rock it somehow. This is, I could go I could go on on this on this <laughs> for a while, um, but. Um... We'll we'll leave it we'll leave it up to the imagination of the audience and this is a conversation that is never end. This is the the root of the human condition, really. What we're talking about now, the the one percent and the lack of creativity and the lack of the obvious simple solution of um, lo- using your power to love others, giving you meaning rather than trying to continue to please yourself with inputs that aren't 
um, and I think that's valuable. a real key to, a, a key to happiness. You know, as as the, the more we just try to get stuff for ourselves, the less happy we are. The more we try to help people, and then the more we can be successful at that, then the happier we just naturally become. I I can attest to that, Steve. I appreciate the time today, man. It's been a pleasure. Right. Good talking to you. You too, man. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.